Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for June 10th, 2018. Today's podcast is a guest sermon given by Murray Ezring, Senior Rabbi of Temple Israel in Charlotte, North Carolina. His sermon today is entitled, Who's What in the Bible? Good morning, Park Road. It's a pleasure to be back here. It was a surprising pleasure when I was waiting for the procession to begin to look across the lobby and back and see Al Lehman standing there, whom unfortunately I have to admit I haven't seen in a number of years. The first time he came to Temple Israel, He stood on the bima, on the pulpit, and did this, took off his watch, put it down, and he said, you know what it means when a Baptist preacher puts his watch on the podium? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) I, on the other hand, will guarantee you that with my watch sitting here like this, I will not go over the 40 minutes Russ gave me. And if you think I'm kidding, you can ask the people from Temple Israel here today about how long the service went yesterday. Three and a quarter hours. So find a comfortable position. I titled my remarks this morning, Who's What in Biblical Stories? Because the Tanakh, as we call it, the Bible can be very, very confusing. So I want to start with the easier story, that being the Good Samaritan. And I want to simply ask this question first, and it is not a rhetorical question. Is there anyone here who can tell me what a Samaritan is or was? Aha. Do you have an answer? Okay, a person from Samaria, um, I can accept that, because this, yes sir? They worshipped on a different mountain. They worshipped on Mount Grizim, and they had a temple in Shechem, which was the original location of the Ark of the Covenant when Israel brought it to Israel. And believe they were the chosen people. And believe they were the chosen people. Have you ever read 2 Kings 17? Oh, because it sounds like you did. Um, 2 Kings 17 is the source of most information biblically about the Samaritans. But we don't even call them by the right name in the Bible. So we have to understand that Samaritans lived in Samaria, but that did not necessarily mean they were Samarians. Samarians were called Shomronim, and that is where they lived, and 2 Kings 17 calls the Samaritans Shomronim. We have been fortunate over the last 50 years in that there has been a discovery of Samaritan writings dating back to the ancient world. And so today we can actually look at what the Samaritans thought of themselves. We know today 
that although the Bible is not happy with Samaritans, claiming that they intermarried with pagans, etc., etc., and were not the best of all people. According to the Samaritans, they were the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They always were, they always will be. And their temple mount on Grizim was within the holdings of Ephraim and Manasseh. They claim to have had direct descendants of Aaron, Eliezer, and Pinchas as their high priests until just recently. They were defeated along with the northern kingdoms and sent into exile. And no one knows really whether their priests came back from exile. The Samaritans do refer to themselves of, as Shamerim, Al Ha'emet, keepers of the truth. And according to Ezra and Nehemiah, when Israel returned after the Babylonian exile and started to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem to protect them, it was the Samaritans who approached foreign authorities for permission to stop the rebuilding of the temple and the temple wall, and they destroyed it themselves. So the history between Israel and the Samaritans is, is very difficult, questionable, and confusing. The final break came after the Hasmonean king, John Hyrcanus, conquered the city of Shechem and destroyed the Samaritan temple for all time. And that was the final break with the people of Israel. Samaria rises again during the Roman conquest until Romans eventually decided Samaritans really were Jews and treated them like the Jews, which means not very well. And so we have a situation at the time the story is told in which Samaritans were the enemies of Israel, at times the enemies of Christians, at times the enemies of Romans, and in a number of small wars, you never knew who was going to take which side and fight whom. One thing we know, therefore, is that Samaritans and the people of Israel did not get along well at all. Far worse, in fact, than two kings leads us to believe. Now, in the days of Jesus, you have to understand the politics of the era to understand what was going on. There were three major political parties in Israel in those days. Anyone know what they are? Any one of them? Yes, sir. The Pharisees, okay, Pharisees. Pharisees come from the Hebrew word perushim. They were the people who read the Bible not only literally, but then they comment on it and they used internal criticism, lower criticism, internal criticism of the Bible to explain biblical passages. I think you want to give me at least one more. The Sadducees, very good. The Tzedukim, which is the Hebrew word, 
are the, they were the hierarchy of the Jewish community. They were the priests and the Levites. They were the people who, like in the days of the Greeks, were pandering to the Romans for financial benefit and for the right to maintain their position. So they were breaking Jewish law left and right in order to maintain their positive relationship with the Romans. The Sadducees and, and Pharisees did not get along until the final war against the Romans in the year 70, which ended in the destruction of the temple. Anyone know who the third party was? Hump? The, the third party were a group of people who were called the Essenes. Okay, now they maybe include the Qumran sect. We're not 100% sure how wide the Essenes were spread, but they were rebelling against Rome as well and arguing with the Pharisees and fighting with the Sadducees. And then you had this small nascent Christian community which didn't quite know where it fit in. And of course you had the rulers of the country really, and that was Rome. So when I read the story of the Good Samaritan, the first thing I notice is that Luke did not like Sadducees. A priest came by and did nothing. Of course, a Sadducee wouldn't do anything for anyone else. No one's as good as we are. We know the law. We know how everything's supposed to work. And all you people who disagree with us, eh. And then a Levite comes along. What's a Levite? A lower priest, another Sadducee. And he sees this poor guy naked, beaten, bleeding, in need of help. And he said, I can't get my hands dirty with blood because that would make me unable to work in the temple for sacrifice for a while. So he walks by without doing anything. So one thing I learn knowing the historical situation, is that Jesus probably did not like Sadducees. And of course, you know the story of the turning over the tables uh, at the temple. Those were Sadducees who were collecting money and, and charging an exchange rate, which according to the Bible, you're not allowed to do. So there were many in the Jewish community as well as the Christian community who were fighting the, the priesthood like that. Then comes a less reprehensible person, a Samaritan. And the Samaritan walking by knows nothing about the person who's lying there, doesn't know who he is, whether he is uh, an Israelite, whether he is a Roman, whether he is whoever. And so he helps him and brings him to the inn and pays the innkeeper to take care of him and tells him, when I come back this way, if you need more money, I'll give it to you. A, a decent man who brought this injured person to a place where he could be helped. But does he really help him? No. He digs into his pocket and takes out some money and gives the denarii to the innkeeper and offers him more if he needs it and goes along his way. According to Jewish law, 
that's not a good person either. Better person than the others. But at this point, I have to talk a minute about this very confusing sentence that is being used here as the basis of the whole question of what is a neighbor, and that is, love your neighbor as you love yourself. This statement is very specific in the Torah. It's very clear. Love your neighbor means love everyone who's like you. If you're an Israelite, love the Israelites. And that's it. How do I know that? Because 12 sentences later, the Bible says, Vahager hagar itchem, the stranger who lives amongst you, v'yahavta lo kamocha, love him as you love yourself. So there's a separate law loving people who are like you, another law right afterwards telling you love people who are different from you, and then not until the book of Deuteronomy are we told, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So that if you really want to love God, you have to show your love for your neighbor, your love for the stranger, and only then can you show your love for God. That's a powerful teaching. And that's missing here. Here we're dealing with one line out of context. And we're dealing with people who 2,000 years ago had terrible relationships. What's really going on in this story, I'm not 100% sure, other than it seems to me Jesus is telling people the Samaritan is a better person to follow right now than the priests and the Levites and the Sadducees which becomes not only a religious and moral and ethical statement, but a political statement as well, which is very common in those days in biblical stories, at least in our biblical stories. I don't know enough of your biblical stories at that time to, to talk as well about them. But if we look at the politics and the understanding of the Ahavta Lorecha Kamocha, we may be surprised that what was happening wasn't quite perhaps what this story says. But that's for you to determine because I hate talking about other people's scriptures. They're not mine and it's easy to see things in it that believers don't see. I want to turn now to the suffering servant. Yeah, that's how I felt. Um, the story of the Good Samaritan is actually easier to deal with than the suffering servant. Because, again, the Bible isn't clear. Has anyone ever taken the time to read all of the suffering servant texts in Isaiah? Sometimes he's, refusing, he's referring to the collective, Sometimes he's referring to an individual, and it could be an individual of the past, or an individual of the future, or it could be autobiographical. And now, some biblical scholars are finding that it may be a mythical 
person who will bring order, etc., to the world. Fortunately, not our scholars. Um, so if we're talking about a biographical servant, yes, there are a lot of them, I know. The servant has been identified perhaps as King David or King Uzziah or King Josiah who died young or Hezekiah who suffered from a deathly illness or Jehoiachim who was taken off to captivity or Zerubbabel who was the only living prince of Israel known at the day who was returned from Babylon and then disappeared. Any one of them are seen at different times of history as the suffering servant. It could also be autobiographical, which would mean Isaiah's talking about himself. That his life has been tough. And that you need to listen and do what Isaiah says to return to the way of life that God wants. And the problem with all of these different interpretations, and of course, the biographical, when it turns to the future, is the interpretation that Christians cling to and say this was, an this was a prophecy of Jesus. And these are all legitimate prophecies and understandings of the prophecy from my perspective, except for one little detail. And that is for prophets to be considered true prophets in ancient Israel. The prophecy had to come true while the prophet was still around. Then we, I've left out definitive, for a reason, the last one, the collective. And there are many places in the Isaiah commentaries chapter 51, chapter 54, chapter 55, and chapter 59, where it's very clear that the suffering servant is meant to be the people Israel. People have a difficulty understanding that. How could a collective do all this suffering to atone for sins, etc., etc.? This is where I want to bring out the teaching that Russ and I did on the day of the March for Our Lives. I want you to think for a moment. Think back to when you were young. There were problems in America. There were robberies. There were murders. There were attacks. But how many of us were either afraid to go to school or afraid to send our children or grandchildren to school? How many of us we're truly worried as children about coming home at night after school ended. Today, in the United States of America, we, as a civilization and as a culture, feel that pain now every time a school is attacked, every time students and teachers are murdered in their classrooms. We feel that pain. Is that telling us that we need to atone for the sins we have been seeing growing around us 
that maybe even some of us have committed, that the morality of America is now in question. Has anyone ever seen the television program Newsroom? No. It's, uh, you really, it's on Netflix. Watch the first 10 minutes of the first episode where Jeff Daniels' character is asked, what makes America the best country in the world? And he goes on a tirade of why we're not anymore mentioning all the things that we feel and come to our mind as I was talking to you about the violence in our streets, about the violence in our schools. How do we protect our youth, our most valuable resource? And when it comes to taking action, you know, when we were at the March Against Violence, Boy, everyone knew within the next week to 10 days, North Carolina was going to pass new gun laws. I haven't seen any new gun laws in this state. Have you? Have you seen any new gun laws in this nation? Neither have I. We would rather turn our schools into fortresses then confront the real issues of our time. And I think that's what Isaiah is talking about if the proper interpretation of the suffering servant is the people Israel. They saw the violence growing within their borders. They saw the enemy at their borders. And still one of their major political parties invited the Romans in and gave them control of Jerusalem. How do we live with that? There are those who tell, will tell you that part of the problem with the Roman rule of ancient Israel was the forced conversions of John Hyrcanus whenever he would conquer a neighboring country. He would force everyone to convert. That's how Herod ended up being king of Israel. And the nation suffered as a nation because of that. So what I'm trying to say today is, I got 20 minutes left, um, <laughs> is that when we read biblical prophecy, when we read biblical stories, we have to not only look at them literally, but see what the rationale behind them is. What is the prophet or the writer responding to? Because that's a complete human being who's doing the writing with political and personal motives. And we have to try to understand those when we read our Holy Scriptures. But what's most important to me today is that we're looking at these together. And that I can come to a Baptist church and expound on my reading of your story and my understanding of a prophecy of Isaiah that is basic to Christian belief. And that we, when I walk off this pulpit, 
will still be friends and still understand each other and still love each other. May it always be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.